Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're joined by Michael Strain. He's an American economist and the director of economic studies at the American Enterprise Institute and the author of the new book, The American Dream is Not Dead, But Populism Can Kill It. Michael, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to, great to be with you. So as we were just chatting just before we started recording, the book came out on February 25th, but that seems like a lifetime ago. Uh, so uh, kind of take us back to January and February and give us the, the view of, you know, what was the, the, the thrust of the book? And then we'll, we'll move forward back to the sort of the current timeline, but sort of lay the groundwork. Tell us what your book was about. So my, my book is about the uh, kind of economic uh, experience of typical workers and typical households um, over the past three decades. So taking, taking kind of a longer view and I look at, you know, some, you know, pretty basic things. Um, it's common lately to hear the assertion that the economy is rigged against typical workers and that the benefits of the economy only accrue to uh, workers at the very top. Um, I examine that claim. It's very common to hear from both the political left and the political right that wages for, for typical workers have been stagnant for decades uh, I look into that. Uh, it's very common to hear the assertion that America is no longer upwardly mobile. Uh, I, I examine that as well. I examine uh, household income trends. I examine what's happened in the middle of the labor market. You know what's happened to manufacturing jobs. What's happened to other kinds of middle wage, middle skill jobs. Uh, I look at quality of life. You know the whole the point is to just kind of you know, offer offer a, a, a kind of thirty thousand foot perspective of of the past three decades as they you know have been experienced by typical Americans and in typical households. And what I find is that the 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 kind of standard narrative on both the left and the right of um, excessive pessimism uh, is just is just is just at odds with the with the basic facts. Um, and so, and so that you know, that that's really kind of the bulk of the book is is, is looking at looking at those at those uh, at those issues. So, one of the things I thought was really interesting about your book was uh, the that you actually gave space to some of your critics, some of the people you have a disagreement with, uh, with, uh, including E.J. Dion and then Henry Olson. What was your thought about putting their perspective in? Of course, you had a rebuttal to it, but. What was your thought there in, in giving that in giving them space to air their views? Yeah, so I can't take credit for that. That's what that was the publisher's idea. Um, but you know, I think it's I think it was really helpful and, and, and helped help strengthen the book. You know, I think the the argument that I'm making is is kind of so at odds with the standard narrative that's out there and 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 will strike readers as so counterintuitive that what I wanted to do was find you know, really thoughtful people on both the right and the left um, who would disagree and 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 would and, and would push back against it, um, and I thought that would really help the reader to kind of you know see the kind of the full the full range of thought on these issues. And you know, then of course I I reserve the right to to, to have the last word, which I did <laughs> um, right. as well. So it's not it's not completely magnanimous here, but <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, but but I wanted you know I. I I think I think it's good for the reader to see 
to see, you know, to kind of have have the debate in in in, in one volume and, and not just to have one part of the debate. I, I think you know one of the you know one of the guests that we've had on the show before is Oren Cass, and I see um, I don't know how much you the two of you really go at it, but I certainly see. Uh, other writers sort of juxtapose your views quite a lot, certainly up until this current crisis. Uh, you know, so talk a little bit about that. Talk about how your views differ from, say, an Orrin Cass, particularly you know pre-coronavirus. And then maybe let's talk a little bit about how, what they might look like, you know, dealing with the uh, you know the, the the governmental response, the economic plunge, if you will. But let's talk a little bit about that, about these differing economic views on just the right, because that's to me, that's sort of an interesting side. But, you know, Josiah and I both are, I guess, on on the right, if you will. And there's been this ongoing conversation about the, the future of conservatism. Talk a little bit about that. What's the, you know, explain what you, how your views may be a little bit different than, say, those of an Orrin Cass or a Marco Rubio, for that matter. So on the on on the right, since um, you know uh, twenty sixteen, we've seen uh, a surge of of populism uh, and uh, a surge of, of of what you might call conservative nationalism. And you know this has you know the, the, a lot of the characteristics of of, of kind of left wing populism as well. You know, an argument that uh, public policy and the economy are working against kind of the people, quote unquote, in favor of the elites, quote unquote, is something that you hear frequently from Josh Hawley, for example, who's a Republican senator from Missouri and and kind of a rising conservative populist star. You hear that from Tucker Carlson, the uh, Fox News host. You hear it from President Trump. Um, uh, uh, You hear it from analysts like like Orrin. Uh, like Orrin Cass, who you just mentioned, and, uh, and, and, and it's really kind of, you know, gained a lot of purchase on the right um, in the last few years in a way that, that surprised me and that, that I don't think a lot of people would have, you know, would have uh, would have predicted. Um, you know, it's it's a short walk from, uh, you know, American carnage, right? The, the, the theme of the president's uh, inaugural address. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a short walk from there to an embrace of economic policies that uh, are, are, you know, typically anathema to the right. Um, industrial policy to shore up manufacturing, the idea that, you know, free trade has been on net a negative for the U.S. economy and for U.S. households, uh, the idea that we should walk back globalization, um, uh, the idea that we should have you know, really targeted regional policy, um, uh, you know, these sorts of things. You know, my my reading of the evidence is just very different from from uh, from what conservative populists and conservative nationalists see, um, you know, and and, you know, kind of therefore my thoughts on on the appropriate public policy response are, you know, are also very different from uh, from theirs. I mean, I just don't you know, I I see I see real pockets of problems um, in the American economy and in, in an American society. You know, certainly now we're facing a very serious challenge. But even before the coronavirus really uh, became such a serious issue, you know, there there was a lot wrong in in uh, in, in the American economy um, and, and in American society, to be sure. And I have a whole chapter in the book where I talk about I talk about these challenges, um, but those challenges don't define the typical experience. They don't define 
what's happening to most people. I mean, yes, if you are a fifty-something-year-old um, man uh, who never graduated high school, the labor market is not is not kind to you, um, and we should have better policy to help uh, bring economic opportunity to workers. Uh, you know, in in that situation. But, you know, most people aren't a a male worker without a a high school degree. Um, Yes, there are some towns that have been really decimated by deindustrialization and that haven't come back. Uh, But the overwhelming majority of American local communities are are doing fine. Um, And, you know, even the overwhelming majority of American local communities that in the 1970s were uh, manufacturing hubs have successfully transitioned to other industries or are still manufacturing hubs. So, you know, most, most towns aren't, uh, uh, you know, uh, don't, don't fit the characterization the president had of, you know, uh, rusted out factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape of the nation. Um, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and certainly most people don't live in a town like that. Um, uh, you know, so what I so what I try to do is, you know, I don't I don't try and dismiss those those issues by any stretch, but I but I but I, but instead I, I kind of try and zoom out from them and look at the thirty thousand foot level at, at 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 how the economy is doing as a whole, how American society is doing as a whole, how it's doing over uh, you know a longer period of time, um, and and how you know most people experience the economy in American life, and 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 I just find you know, a very different set of conclusions than, than what you would hear from uh, Oren or from Senator Hawley or from uh, the president or from Tucker Carlson or, 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 or from, you know, people who, who see the world that way. So I want to focus on that just a little bit, because one of the things that, that I find kind of interesting is uh, there is a uh, pamphlet that AEI, along with Brookings, put out about, I want to say, 18 months ago on uh, policies that were sort of from a um, bipartisan policy perspective, because obviously you have AEI and then you have Brookings, um, with a sort of host of policies that might be helpful for workers. And I believe that Orrin Cass was one of the principal uh, contributors to that. Yeah. And what what I find interesting is there's a lot of uh, sort of rhetoric in terms of you know, the market is failing the American people, the American dream is dead. And then when I see, a, you know, a set of policies put together, they're, from my perspective, they weren't radical. And I sort of like to get your perspective on this because there's, on one side, there's there's the rhetoric. And I, certainly I have policy differences with, say, Mar- Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley. But it seems like the, the rhetoric is a little more heated than maybe the policy differences are. What's your perspective on that? Well, I think you know. I think in some cases that's that's true. I think I think in in other cases it's it's uh, it's probably not. I mean, you know, I think it depends on what group you're talking about. I mean, uh, you know, among elected officials, you know, the rhetoric is always too heated. <laughs> uh, right. You know, but there are there are real policy differences. I mean, the argument, for example, that manufacturing should kind of hold pride of place uh, among all industries and that U.S. Uh, tax policy and other policies should, you know, give special attention and have, you know, special features to, to favor manufacturing. That's a major difference. The, right. um, uh, that's a major difference on the right, you know, between kind of the more, right. you know, traditional free market people on the right and, and some of the newer conservative populists on the right. The, um, the argument that globalization has been, 
you know, um, taken too far or has been a net negative or, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the argument that, you know, the globalization should have been stopped in 1990 or stopped in 1980 or something like that, um, you know, is, you know, that's a very serious difference, um, uh, again, between the more kind of free market traditional camp on the right and, and the conservative populists. Um you know other things. I mean, the you know the the debate over over the 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 wisdom of having two adults, you know, both parents working. Um, I mean, you you know you you see that um, uh, you see that debate happening as well, and that's you know very much a you know part of this kind of broader conversation. You know, has the modern economy created a situation where both mom and dad feel like they have to go to work, and what is that doing to family life what is that doing to communities um what's that doing to mom and dad you know a lot of the a lot of the kind of conservative nationalists that are of a social conservative bent uh, are you know actively questioning the wisdom of uh of of of, of, of the of, of the economy and, and of society's uh, embrace of, of 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 having you know uh, both both parents working um in, in 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 families uh you know that's that's you know, uh, uh, a, a huge uh, debate and, 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 and not a, you know, not a, not a small, not a small disagreement. So I think there are some, some very real substantive disagreements. Uh, but I think you're also right that, you know, a lot of the rhetoric is, um, is pretty heated. Well, I was going to say that, um, you know, I, I, from my own perspective, I probably dismiss some of the the conversation about uh, the wisdom of having two parents working just because I, I feel like, yes, there can be some policy implications there for sure, but to a certain degree, it's going to be an individual choice. That's probably going to trump what, you know, what people of that bent are trying to do. If, if, you know, if a family feels like they need to be working both parents, they'll go ahead and do that. And so to a certain degree, I sort of dismiss a lot of that conversation, um, but one of the things that I found interesting is, and, and kind of what's your perspective on this is, for instance, like Cass promotes the idea of a wage subsidy and a lot of people that are, you know, free market people are going to support um, like an earned income credit, which these don't seem to be worlds apart to me. And so it's it, like some of that is a matter of degree in my mind. What do you think? Oh, well, on that specific issue, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think um, if I remember right, uh, you know, what what Oren calls for is a, you know, a really, really big <laughs> um, mm. uh, wage. Right. I mean, I think it's something like $350 billion a year or something like that. So, you know, that's, you know, that's like 10 times the size that I think a lot of the more free market uh, people on, on, on the political right would be, would be comfortable with. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, so, so even there, like there is a, a pretty large, pretty large difference though you're right i mean the you know the difference between an eitc and a wage subsidy um you know is i think the difference of implementation not not a difference of of kind of underlying goals um Mm -hmm. you know there's also a question i mean you know but but again right i mean you know it's not it's not super uncommon to hear calls for a male wage subsidy (laughs) you know know what i'm saying i mean you know so so a lot of this does I mean, a lot of the, I mean, there are, there is real disagreement is what I'm saying. Um, and, right. and I think you're right about, um, you're right about, you know, some of the kind of, you know, social, social uh, uh, type issues not being, 
you know, readily applicable uh, to being addressed by public policy. But, you know, if you have if you have a male wage subsidy because you feel like, you know, men are getting you know, uh, screwed by the by the labor market, uh, you know, that's that's you know, not a not a policy that, that a lot of, you know, of the more kind of free market conservatives would would like to support. <laughs> yeah, so I am interested in so we, we certainly have seen a uh, definite rise in the uh, political fortunes of populism, right? not only in the United States, but all over the place, really, in, in the past few years. And, you know, I know you're in your book, you talk a lot about how the, the, the populist argument is the ordinary people have been getting screwed. Uh, and, you know, if your book is like, well, things are actually not so bad economically, why do you think that there is, has been this turn towards uh, populism? Why, why is it, why are people so much more willing to go along with, with those arguments now, as opposed to 10, 15 years ago or more? Well, so I think the biggest uh, the biggest reason is that things were really bad uh, not that long ago. <laughs> um, you know, so so when I say that, that things have been good over over the kind of three decade period that I look at, and that it's a story of economic progress, um, you know, I'm 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 careful not to argue that it's a story of uninterrupted economic. I mean, the whole, you know, the whole, the whole reason to zoom out and look at, at, at a 30 year period is because, you know, looking at uh, any particular set of years, you know, those could either be good years or, or bad years. And you don't want to overlearn the lessons from either the good years or the bad years. Um, the uh, Great Recession uh, uh, was an extremely traumatic economic event, you know, 10 percent unemployment. Uh, an economic recovery um, that took years to reach the middle and the bottom of the labor market, uh, an economic recovery that was steady, but that was also very slow. Um, and, you know, there's a, a long historical record of uh, populism surging following financial crises and, um, and the, uh, the, the, the sharp recessions and slow recoveries that follow those crises. Um, and so what we've actually seen in the United States, and as you said, what we've seen in, in many uh, developed nations is, is part of that historical pattern. Um, you get a financial crisis, you get a bad recession, you get a slow recovery, and you get an upsurge of populism and, and populist sentiment. Um, so I think that's I think that's why you saw this, you know, really take off um, in the United States uh, on the political left with Occupy Wall Street and and things of that nature, and then extend to the political right, uh, you know, you know, kind of starting in in you know maybe kind of starting with the uh, with you know in earnest with the um, with the with the presidential primaries that began you know around around the year 2015. Um, and then, and then it, you know, and then, it, and then it happened that that a populist uh, candidate won the White House, President Trump, um, and so that extended this period of populism into uh, uh, the years um, uh, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, when things really were very good. You know, you still had this populist, this populist kind of surge um, on the political right because there was a populist in office and 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 that kind of fueled uh, populism on the political left which you saw with the uh, candidacies of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders 
you know, it looks like uh, uh, Joe Biden is going to be the nominee, um, uh, you know, which suggests that, you know, populism uh, was has been waning on the on the political left. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, President Trump was also pivoting away pretty sharply from his populist message in the last few months, you know, talking about the great American comeback and, and, uh, and these sorts of things. So I think we did, we were kind of seeing, you know, populism starting to fade, at least the, the, the early signs that it, that it was starting to fade, uh, you know, but, but, you know, who knows what's going to, who knows what's going to happen now? Well, let's, let's talk about that because what, what's your prognosis for, you know, we were, coming out, you know, hopefully in the next few months, we'll be coming out of the worst parts of the crisis. And we're still going to be in potentially a a pretty rough patch economically. Do you do you think that that's going to feed, you know, bolster more populism? Or do you think that that, you know, that we're going to somehow look back at this and say we should have should have been electing more technocratic people? What do you think the response is likely to be? You know, I think I think it really depends on what happens. Um, so it is easy for me to imagine uh, a scenario where the Trump administration really bungles the response to the coronavirus, where the um, virus is more aggressive than we than we are thinking it's going to be, and, uh, and fatalities from the virus are much uh, higher than than we're than we're expecting, and where you know, there's a, you know, real backlash against the ability of government to do anything right. You know, that I think would possibly extend uh, a, a, um, a, a, you know, kind of a populist, you know, elites versus the people type mentality. I think it's also possible that we'll come out of this, you know, that the Trump administration will, will, will get it together and, and um, uh, and that and we'll come out of this with a greater appreciation for the need of government and for the need of you know for the need of experts and for the need of of of, of society having an ability to respond you know quickly to these sorts of unexpected events. You know, I can also imagine a scenario where you know the virus ends up being much less damaging than, than we think it's going to be, and um, uh, you know that in and of itself gas on the populist fire, right? I mean, you know, a situation where, right. I, mean, I hate to be crass about it, but, you know, a situation where, you know, fewer people pass away from the coronavirus than would, would pass away during a typical flu season. Um, you know, of course, every life is precious, but, you know, people will, people will you know, react to those statistics. Um, you know, but also a situation where we have a 15% unemployment rate you know, I can easily see um, populists on the left and the right, uh, you know, maybe particularly on the right, argue that, you know, we listen to the experts and shut down the economy and look, you know, the working class has all lost its jobs and, you know, and, and, and you know, businesses that were run by working class folks have, have all, you know, got, gone out of business, you know, but, you know, the experts were wrong about how serious the virus was going to be, you know, kind of et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I can see it, it, it just increasing the divide between the people, quote unquote, and the elites, quote unquote. So I, I just I think we're still too early in in this to really know. I mean, you know, I think I think I think the, the one thing that we that we probably do know is that President Trump is going to start agitating to open the economy s- soon. Um, you know, his his reelection chances will depend a lot on 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 how the economy's doing and 
you know, if he if he thinks that, you know, we can we can reach a point where, you know, transmission of the virus won't explode by reopening the economy, he's gonna he's gonna want to seize that moment. Um, you know what the, what that would do to populism, I think, is a is a is a difficult question. Isn't he somewhat inoculated though, because there was so much. I don't want to say fear mongering, but there was so much discussion about really bleak death tolls. And then you hear, you know, uh, like on the, on the economic side, you hear numbers from, from Goldman Sachs saying that we're going to have 30% or more plunge in, in GDP. If, if right now it looks like we're revising down the fatality rates, fatality numbers, and if if you economically if you do much better than a reduction of 30 percent in the second quarter haven't we sort of inoculated trump to declare victory i mean it's i mean it's clearly what he's going to do right well i think i'll i think i'll try to declare victory regardless of (laughs) right um you know so i just think so i just think it's you know it's it's just i i just think a lot is a lot is uh, a lot is up in the air obviously but but certainly you know certainly the president will Try and spit it. <laughs> well, uh, so let me ask you. Obviously, I don't, I don't want to tempt you to speculation, but I'm going to. What do you think is the prognosis for economic uh, recovery? Obviously, we've had a, we've had a series of rather grim, you know, economic indicators. The thing that makes this situation a little different from your typical recession or depression is that, to some extent it is self-imposed and that you have these shutdown orders or whatnot that are prohibiting businesses from being open. So in theory, you could say, well, if that, if those orders go away, if we find the cure or whatnot, then there could be a big boom and everything could return to normal. Uh, but of course there's also issues of the bridge of businesses going under in the meantime. So, I mean, you know, what do you think the recovery is going to look like? Is it going to be the so-called V recovery where it goes down fast uh, and goes up fast? Is it going to be, I, I don't know what the letter would be where it goes down fast and then stays down. Maybe an L. Or you. You know, I don't, I don't know. I think it's, um, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's obviously a cheap answer. Um, you know, I, my, where my intuition is right now is that we will uh, recover faster from this than, than I think a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people are currently thinking. Um, I mean, you know, I'm, you know, let's say that the public health people are right and we hit the national peak, um, you know, later this week or early next week, you know, sometime in the next two weeks. Um, you know, let's also, let's also, you know, assume that, um, that, uh, that, that the government does a better job implementing uh, some of these uh, policies that Congress passed um you know or or at least a marginally better job doing so you know then i think you can see a situation where uh we begin reopening in may a a situation where by early summer we are you know i don't know maybe 80 percent back to normal i mean i think the reopening will take place kind of region by region but you know, uh, so New York's peak will come before Washington D.C.'s peak, for example. Um, but uh, you know, but 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 as a nation, as a whole, you know, maybe we're eighty percent back to normal in early summer, um, and and uh, and then we kind of you know 
move closer and closer to 100%. From what the public health experts tell me, which I want to just underscore, I am not a public health expert, um, but what the public health experts tell me is that there's a reasonable likelihood that there'll be a medicine available for, for the coronavirus um, early to midsummer. Uh, not a vaccine. I think a vaccine is, is, from what I understand, a vaccine is much further away, but a medicine to make the disease, um, uh, you know, less severe for people uh, who may be at risk, uh, you know, a treatment. Um, you know, that could be a huge game changer if that's the case. Uh, you know, people would just feel more comfortable uh, eating out at a restaurant or going to a, uh, you know, going to to a shop or going to get a haircut. Um, if they think that there's a backstop, uh, you know, you know, maybe they'll catch this virus, but they'll, but they'll be able to, to take a medicine that will, that will make it much less severe for them. You know, so in that case, the question is, uh, you know, how quickly can we bring the unemployment rate from 15 or 20 percent down into the fives, uh, into the five, five to six percent range? And, you know, I think faster than, than people think. Um, I mean, I think a lot of, you know, a lot, hopefully a lot of businesses are still are still open. I think I think a lot will be. And, you know, a period of unemployment that short, you know, I, you know, I hope that a lot of business owners just call their workers up and say, hey, do you want to come back to work? And a lot of those workers just say yes. Um, and, and that's just what they want to do. If 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 that matching process uh, between unemployed workers and their previous job uh, employers goes quickly, then you know we'll see that unemployment rate come down pretty rapidly. There are policies on the on the books as of two weeks ago uh, that are designed to keep workers attached to their employers. If those policies can be implemented better and and, and taken advantage of by businesses, you know that'll that'll put downward pressure on the unemployment rate and and and, and mitigate some of this damage while also preserving the ecosystem of small business. You know, so I think that there are, I think that there are real reasons for optimism. You know, what does that look like? I think it looks like uh, an economy that is growing again in the third quarter of the year, uh, or at least in the fourth quarter of the year. Um, and I think it's an economy that is, you know, you know, kind of, you know, maybe fully recovered from, uh, from this virus at the end of 2021, you know, which, you know, all things considered is um, a reasonably quick recovery kind of given just how severe the drop in economic activity is going to be uh, this April, May, and June. Well, let's talk a little bit about sort of what your policy view would be. What, what would you do? I mean, you, you've sort of alluded to the CARES Act and the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, you know, what did they do right? What what would you have done differently? What you know, what would you suggest Congress do if you uh, if you had their ear? I mean, con- you know, Congress got a lot of this right. Um, the most important thing to do, I think, is to preserve business continuity. You know that that is a way to to allow the. I mean, what you ideally want to do, right, is you want to be able to like f- hit the pause button, freeze the economy in place you know, where it is in, in early March, let's say, and then just, you know, be able to hit the play button again. And, you know, in, 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 in mid-May or early June or whatever the public health people say it's okay, um, you, want, you, you want the economy to just snap back and kind of be back where it was, you know, because again, like these businesses 
aren't failing because they're making bad choices or they're, you know, a competitor is, is, is entering the marketplace and doing better than them. You know, it's, 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 it's a pandemic. It's an act of God that's, that's taking away their, their customers and their revenue. So you don't want those businesses. There's no purpose served for the broader economy if those businesses go out of business. So Congress has a program that will pay the bills for businesses for, for eight weeks. Uh, it'll pay their, it'll pay their payroll costs so they can keep their workers on, keep the workers out of unemployment and keep the workers uh, on the job. It'll pay their utilities. It'll pay their rent. It'll pay their mortgage interest for, for a two month period. That's a, that is a good deal for small business. Uh, the program needs to be bigger. The program needs to, to be implemented better. I mean, a major challenge has been the treasury department's efforts to implement the program, but it's a good program. And if treasury can work on some of those implementation issues, it'll be an even better program. Uh, there's, there, there's a lot of, uh, money in, in the phase three legislation that was signed two weeks ago uh, to support large businesses with, with loans, um, which, which I think is, is also appropriate. The unemployment insurance system was, was made more generous. Um, that's appropriate as well. You know, the Congress probably made the unemployment insurance system a little too generous, but, but it's, good. it's good that the generosity of it, of it was increased. We're likely going to need more aid to state and local governments. We're likely going to need more uh, uh, spending on public health measures um, related to the coronavirus. And we're likely going to need to, to, to expand and extend our business continuity efforts. But, you know, a lot of what Congress has done, they, they've done a good job with it and they did it really quickly. Um, and that's also imperative. Every day we're losing hundreds of thousands of workers. You know, the unemployment rate is going to, you know, we, so the unemployment rate is released every month. And, and, and uh, we got the unemployment rate for the month of March uh, a few days ago, 4.4%. We're going to get the unemployment rate for the month of April in a few weeks. It's going to be fifteen percent, something like that. Um, you know, we, we don't. You'd never see the unemployment rate jump uh, uh, around like that. I mean, it's 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 remarkable just how quickly the economy has has dropped and shrank, and how rapidly we've seen people lose their jobs. Um, so Congress is the speed with which Congress moved is really something uh, to be applauded. Everybody has already made the comment before about, you know, that everybody's coming into uh, the coronavirus and the re- governmental response with, you know, confirming your priors. So sort of with that in mind, uh, as people bring their prior worldview into how we should go forward with the, the economic policy, you know, in the summer and in the fall, what what uh, why should somebody be reading your book now? Uh, you know, if they're if there's this happy book about the American dream's not dead and we're in the midst of going to be perhaps the worst quarter since the Great Recession, or if not the Great Depression, I don't know. What's in the, what's in the book for somebody that wants to look to you know where we go from here? Well, the American dream is still not dead. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I think is what I would say. I mean, you know, why why read this book now? Now may be an even better time to read the book than two months ago. What's needed now is is a longer term perspective, and what's needed now is is kind of hope and confidence that uh, that, that that we're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna get through this, and we're gonna we're gonna be okay. You know, as I said, you know, what I do in the book is I as I look at look at the longer term, kind of the last the, la- the last three decades, the last thirty years, and I, I ask some basic questions about how workers are doing, how households are doing. You know, and I conclude that, that the last three decades have been uh, an economic success story for typical workers and typical households. But I do not conclude that, that, that it has been a story of uninterrupted success. 
Um, and you know, I think if you if you look at the book and 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 look at the story of, of workers and households that I tell in the book, um, that's you know based on the on 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 the data and, and the analysis I do. What you see is that there have been periods of real challenge and real and real setback. You know, most recently the Great Recession, uh, the Great Recession that began with the financial crisis of 2008, uh, 12 years ago. But uh, even uh, given those setbacks and challenges, uh, uh, the longer term trend has been one of economic progress. And so the story in the book is that. American workers and American households overcome situations like this, and 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 that the most accurate characterization of how they've done over the longer term, what the trend is, is a story of wages growing. It's a story of upward mobility. It's a story of uh, 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 of, of economic dynamism that, that that creates opportunities. A story of quality of life improving. A story of household income growing even given the fact that this period of progress is punctuated by uh, periods of setback and by obstacles and by challenges. So, you know, for people who, I mean, it's going to be a tough few months here and we're going to see, you know, we could see the economy contract by 30% in the second quarter. We could see the unemployment rate, uh, you know, get up, yeah, into into the twenties, which it hasn't done since the Great Depression, um, since it's ha- it hasn't done that since the nineteen thirties, since the Great Depression. You know, we are, are we've already seen ten million people lose their jobs. We saw ten million people lose their jobs in a two week period. I mean, it's 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 amazing. You know, you know, in 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 one week, uh, in the week ending March twenty eighth, six point uh, I think it was six point six million, something like that. Uh, people filed for unemployment insurance okay. for the first time. Right. The previous record uh, before coronavirus uh, was was one tenth that number in a given week, uh, and that was set back in the eighties. We are we are we are in a, a period of, of of really acute and intense economic pain. Um, but I think if people read my book, what they'll see is that our expectation should be based on the data, based on how the last thirty years have gone. Uh, based on what's happened over the last 30 years, whenever American workers have faced a challenge, uh, our expectation should be that workers will get through this period, that households will get through this period, and that once this is in the rearview mirror, once the public health threat is in the rearview mirror, uh, our expectation should be that American workers will continue their upward economic climb um, and, that, and, that, and that we'll resume the economic success story that's, that's characterized the last three decades. So uh, I, right before we were set to record this, I was listening to the National Review Editors Podcast, and uh, Charlie Cook, uh, one of the hosts there, as you know, is a very free market guy. But he was sure. saying he thought, as a result of this, that uh, America needed to make serious efforts to try and move back. Uh, you know, certain essential manufacturing, uh, medical supplies and pharmaceuticals to the United States, you know, and if that took uh, government action and violated the principles of free trade or whatever, then he was fine with that. Uh, and so I was just curious, just in terms of, you know, longer term, uh, in what sense, you know, to, to what extent do you think that the outbreak changes the equation in, in 
some of these free trade, hands off government, free market type policies where, you know, perhaps we need more of a more of a role here in order to make sure that we are um, more resilient to whatever the next uh, crisis might be. I guess I would start with the observation that it obviously doesn't make sense to have, you know, deep economic connections and ties with a country that is an outright adversary of the United States, right? So it would not have made sense in the 1970s, you know, for the United States to have complex global supply chains running through the Soviet Union. You know, at the same time, you know, I still think there's a lot of uh, validity to the argument that those economic ties can help prevent uh, the United States and another country from becoming outright adversaries. Um, uh, you know, so, so, you know, I, I think we, I think we shouldn't kind of overlearn any lessons from, from that, from that observation. You know, I, I, I guess I just, I struggle with, with what the, the kind of critics of globalization have in mind in this situation. So is the idea that the government should have owned and employed workers at factories that can create you know, personal protective equipment and ventilators for the last, what, 100 years or something, you know, on the off chance that a, that a, that a global pandemic would present itself, you know, is the, is the, you know, is the argument that there should have been tax policies that propped up, you know, those kinds of, the, 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 the those kinds of manufacturers in, in this event? I mean, you know, I just, I, you know, I, I just want to know kind of what the, and this is and this is like a general issue with a lot of the conservative populist, uh, uh, you know, critiques of, of capitalism. Like, what is the, what is the, what is the specific alternative uh, economic policy regime that you have in mind? You know, I, I don't, I, I don't think they're advocating for the government to be owning factories, right? You know, but then I don't know what they're advocating. You know, um, uh, so you know, I think we, I think we, I think we always want to be looking at at our supply chains and you know, for nations that we're, you know, really in a hostile relationship with, you know, we don't want, I think we don't want, you know, critical facilities to be, to be located, you know, in, 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 in those, in those nations. Well, thank you so much for your time. And uh, it was great having you on the program. Yeah. Happy to do it. Happy to come back anytime. And, and, and thank you guys for, for doing it. I really appreciate it. I mean, it's a very, it's a very well, you have a very well regarded podcast. And so I'm, I'm really grateful that you, that you reached out about it. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urbane Cowboys.